Hello, welcome to How to Win the Lottery, episode three, You Shall Know Our Velocity, or Sacrament, question mark? I don't know. Dave Eckers. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Gene Rayburn. You're listening to Match Game 75. And welcome back to the pod, How to Win the Lottery. So this is, I mean, okay, we're early. This is episode three, but this is the weirdest... I don't want to say the weirdest book, but the weirdest book that we've had so far. Sure. Yeah. What qualifies that for for you to say that? Well, so as astute listeners will have noticed in the title, uh, there's two titles of this book, and that's it's it's insane, and it also wildly changes. So, like, I know the history because you told me the history, but Mm. if people out there are reading this, reading along. There are two very different reading experiences for this. Yeah, so the book was originally published as You Should Learn Velocity in, I think, 2002. Uh, it's Dave Eggers' first novel after his uh, massively popular memoir, heartbreaking work of staggering genius. A little, a short time after You Should Learn Velocity was published, it was republished under the title Sacrament with a 50-page insert in the middle of the book that radically changes the course of the, of the novel. Mm-hmm. All subsequent editions after it was published as Sacrament were republished as You Shall Know Our Velocity, previously, previously titled, titled as, as Sacrament. Sacrament. No, previously retitled Previous, as Sacrament. Yeah. It can get confusing. So Joey and I had had a, a, a bit of a back and forth on what edition, who yeah. had when, and, and, and whether or not the the insert in the middle should be read in the middle or at the end or, or when it should come into play. I bought this book three times. Because uh, for some reason, I did not think it was available on Kindle. And so I bought the actual book off eBay used. And I was like, okay, cool, I got this. And then the insert was not in there because it's just usually on the word velocity. So I don't know if this is like a, the first edition or not a first edition. Like, it's not like a rare book, but like, it doesn't have the thing in the middle. And I'm like, okay, I need to read this. It's on Kindle. I'm going to buy the Kindle version. And then I'm like, okay, let me look and see how much Sacrament is. And so I got Sacrament used, a cool signed, I think, copy, because I think they're all signed, mm-hmm. for eight bucks on Amazon. I was like, oh cool but then as i'm reading the kindle version i get to the middle chunk that's in the kindle version so i didn't need to buy the physical book but this is a cool book to own i think yeah i'm happy that i own this book because it's also unique in how it's laid out like you know there's going to be a a sometimes segment on this show where we call our friend matt and he does some like breakdown of the cover art but this one's cool because the cover of sacrament is the first paragraph of the book, or you were saying the first edition is like the entire first page of the book. In the first hardcover edition of uh, You Shall Learn Velocity, uh, the book starts on the cover. It is the, 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 the entire cover is the first page of the book. And what's weird about this is that on the cover of Sacrament, it says edited and with a new insertion by Francis Hand Wisniewski, who is, if you don't know what this is, it's like, oh, it's a person, but it's a character in the book. Who also, I think, and this, I could be wrong about this, I think at some point in the book they refer to uh, Hand as Justin. So I think also Egger switches his first name for the, for the insert in the middle of it. Oh, uh, boy. So yeah, there, I, I think it's like a bit of an uh, Michigas. Well, because what's weird to me about the production of this, if we want to mm-hmm. call it that, is that... Essentially, Eggers, Dave Eggers, did what these characters do, that he wrote a thing, and then he retroactively went back and was like, now I'm going to change everything. Yeah. It mirrors what the characters do. Right. Has this been done before? I'm... Probably. You know, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly there have been radical edits to books that were already published. Like what? Do you, like... I don't know. It's top of my head. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's been been done. Yeah. But this is, this is wild. It's definitely it's definitely unique. I think I think part of it comes from the fact that I could be mistaken here. I think You Shall Know Velocity may have been the first book published by McSweeney's, which was a 
literary journal that was dedicated to publishing difficult fiction. A, a lot of pieces that had been killed by other magazines or just couldn't get accepted anywhere. Right. For a while was a sort of load bearer uh, for, for independent uh, publishing. And eventually people sort of tired of them because it was like kind of twee. Their aesthetic was kind of twee and it was not maybe representative of the cultural moment anymore. Um, but they they made and make beautiful books and they're they, they've and Dave Eggers, the founder, he funded it through the money that he made from uh, his best selling memoir. Yeah, for a while they were they were making really good stuff. And they didn't like no advertising and everything like that, right? Like it was it was very pure to be like this is about the writing and so on and so forth, I think. Yeah. Yeah. What's also funny about the rewrite is that they changed the title because Hand, the other character, because this, this novel is about two characters, Will and Hand, and Hand's like, yeah, the title's stupid. And so, like, right. it's funny, and I wonder if there's, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I wonder if there's any kind of, like, push or pull, like, if Eggers wanted the title, You Shall Know Where Velocity. As you're reading the story that leads up to that line, like, the titular line in the book, it's like, oh, this is where, like, I, you can tell where it's going. Yeah. And, like, it works. It makes sense in the narrative. But I'm wondering if, like, he didn't want that title and then, like, had this idea and was like, I'm going to have a new title. Because, like, Sacrament, as described by hand in the insert also makes sense it's also a way more generic title i think so i i don't think sacrament is as good a title as you show more velocity i don't think i knew the definition of sacrament until i read this book like i you know sacrament like there's like the biblical but this is just like acting in a way that matches your insides basically yeah something like that the novel you show more velocity i guess or sacrament whatever you want to call it um velocity for brevity's sake it's just about two dudes going around the world and trying to give away $38,000, $32,000. And the difficulties they run into. Yeah. And the the cultural uh, implications of what giving away that money means, whether or not it's condescending, what charity is, uh, how charity should work, should it be as arbitrary as they're making it? Uh, when, you're, when it's not arbitrary, are you making value judgments? How are those value judgments put into context of your own personal culture versus the culture of the people uh, whom you're uh, patronizing? And and a lot of those are the questions that the book deals with, I think. And so it's basically just like a road movie. It's like a buddy, buddy, not buddy cop, just like a buddy road movie. And the two of them just going from country to country. And it do, it's funny that it feels like the easiest thing in the world. Like, we got a week. We're going to go around the world. We're going to go to six yeah. different countries and give all this money away. And then they realize almost immediately oh, this is way harder than we thought it was because countries require visas. They don't have visas. Uh, they're going to lose time on the, the, the time zone changes. International dateline. Will has to get back for a wedding and Hand has to get back for his job. And so they're really hamstrung. And the, the only thing they want to do is go to the pyramids and climb the pyramids as the sun rises or whatever. And they, spoiler, don't get to do that. Yeah, which is typical. I mean, it's, it's typical that like you, for Will at least, he has this entire life of trying to make plans and, and do things and carry them out. And he's not, he doesn't do any of them. He doesn't, this is like the one thing in his life that he's done to completion. All the other things that he wants to do, he wants to be a shark wrangler. He wants to go to space. He wants to, I don't know, work in a fire tower. I think that was maybe one of the things that he wanted to do. Um, he wants to spend his whole life running along the beaches. And uh, uh, he wants to open up a humanitarian aid thing in, in Africa. And all of these things, one after the other, that he will never get to do because life does not allow you all of these choices. You have to pick one and do it. And yep. he's so paralyzed by his inability to choose, that he ends up just being a guy in Chicago. Chicago? 
One of them in Chicago, one's in Wisconsin, I think. I don't remember who's where. No, no, no. One's in St. Louis, one's in Wisconsin, okay. I think. Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. Eggers himself is from Chicago. And they say they're from Chicago. Yeah, they talk about Chicago in yeah. the book. Okay, it's yeah. very dangerous. He doesn't make of his life what he wants to make of his life. Um, and this is a corrective to that, kind of. What I think is really interesting about their dilemma and their sort of ennui, look, I'm learning a word, is... <laughs> look at you. The age choice. Someone... Get out the SATs. Let's <laughs> let's retake them. Is the fact that they're 27. The the life crisis that he's having kind of feels like it could be anyone between like the age of like 18 and 40. Yeah. But 27 feels young enough that there's still possibility and potential. But that there's also like there's reason that he's able to do this like on his own. That people aren't like you're too young to do this, or that like he has the money. Yeah. Also, we should say that the first paragraph, how this opens, is this is before me and my mom died. Right. We'll get to hand stuff later. We'll talk about that later. But from the beginning, Will does not survive the narrative, even though he survives the narrative. This is all published ostensibly posthumously. And so he's trying to do this thing, but there is a sort of sense that, like, it's all in vain, kind of. Well, you know, going in that there's a ticking clock and that all of these things of him fighting against velocity and or fighting against uh, uh, being stagnant and and sort of finding meaning in the moment rather than meaning in the future, which is what's been punishing him. Uh, is is probably made more poignant by the fact that he is uh, that we know, but he doesn't know that he is uh, doomed. Yeah. What I found especially relatable about this is that nine years ago now, I drove cross country. It took six and a half weeks, and I drove cross country here, and I did like twelve thousand miles or eleven thousand miles or whatever, and it was amazing. It was the best thing I've ever done. But when I left here, I left with a friend. We went down to New Orleans and picked up another friend, and my first friend she flew out of San Antonio back here. And then my other friend who picked up New Orleans flew out of L.A. and then did the back half by myself. But my friend that I left here with, Lauren, she and I played a game, could this still be New Jersey? And most of the eastern half of the U.S., the answer is yes. It looks exactly the same. And then you get an hour north of New Orleans and suddenly the road and the forest fall away and you're in the swampland. Like it's the marsh and it's the bayou and it's the bog and it's like, oh, this is different. And then like there's more down there that's still like evergreens and whatever. And then there's like, you know, the Southwest is different or whatever. The reason I bring this up is because throughout this whole thing, they have these notions of what these places they're going to should be, should look like, should resemble, whatever. And they realize it's all kind of the same. Yeah. Like everywhere kind of looks the same. That doesn't matter one way or the other. And I was like, that's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, sure. Experience is not necessarily about geography. They're talking about the expansiveness of of the United States and how, like, all the varied landscapes of the United States, you could fit most different other landscapes inside them. You have the desert of the southwest. You have the swamps of Louisiana. You have Mm -hmm. the northeast forests and things like that. Um, But the thing that really redefines their, redefines the way that they look at this stuff is their interactions with people. Which are all kind of also similar, I guess. Yeah, and I think if you were to describe their interactions by the type of people, not who they are, and this that's a weird way to describe people, but the type of people, I think they would say it's underwhelming. Do you mean dem- do you mean demographically? No, or? I mean like that they keep finding themselves at bars and strip clubs because right. they're yeah, in yeah. they're in a new city at like. 11 p.m. Uh-huh. and they're like oh nothing's open because there is the velocity there's the narrative they have to be back in a week and it, again this is sort of when i was on my trip i was in seattle for three hours and i'm like i want to do more here but like i right. don't have the time to be here because i go to uh riga in latvia at the end and they go to this clothing store and they're like they say to the girls there come have dinner with us and they're like no we'll do it tomorrow they're like well we're gonna be gone tomorrow it's yeah. like well you just got here it's like, and, yeah and, and, yeah and, like another important thing to think is that almost everyone in this book 
whenever they hear what they're doing, they, they think like, well, that's fucking stupid. Why, yeah. are, why are you doing that? Yeah. There are a million better ways to do this from the travel agent to Will's mom to every single person that they run into. To even Will at the end is like, this is dumb. Like he's yeah. like, I should have invested this money. I could have done this every year. Right. But instead I'm doing this one dumb thing. The money came from a picture that someone took of him screwing in a light bulb that they licensed and he made $80,000 on. Yeah. And he just arbitrarily, I think, picked $32,000 to give away on this trip, but they blow it all. And what's funny is that at the end, in, funny in a way that's sad, sort of, is they're trying to find people who, like, deserve it in a yeah. way, but not... You can't ask for it. You can't... Uh, if you provide some utility to them, even if it's not actually utility, like if you give them directions that they already know where they're going, or if you appear uh, in some way to... That it would be useful for you, right. or they want to make it fun, like they, they make a treasure map and hide it, yep. or they... Uh, try to tape it to a to a tire to, to, oh the, ca- the cow yeah, too they yeah. try to tape it to a cow you know they try they try to create fun circumstances things that would have excited them when they were yeah. when they were little things that would have like the the hidden treasure thing in particular will notes that like if that had happened to him when he was a kid it would have lit his brain on fire with right. like, the possibilities yep. of what what could there could be out there in the world you could just stumble upon a treasure map and actually find treasure which we've been taught by pop culture things like uh, the goonies or um uh, I mentioned the Goonies because we talked about it on, yep. the, on that yep. other podcast. Check out High School Slumber Party where they discovered the Goonies. There are a million, a million movies about about hidden treasure, right? That's not real. It doesn't or it doesn't feel real. Well, you know, I spent days of my childhood, and days is probably alone, uh, an exaggeration, but like hours or like afternoons at least, knocking on walls in my house looking for secret compartments because I'm like, they're here somewhere. I know they've got to be because like yeah. I've been told that there's mm-hmm. and like no, there's not like because you can see the other side of the wall, like it's not. Like, yeah, I, I know that over there is the garage or that's outside, right? There's nothing. Yeah, because reality is that life is a lot more, both more banal and more magical than yep. you, you can imagine it to be. Yep. It's it's magical in the sense that, that there are these vast landscapes and oceans and beaches and things like that. But it's banal in that, like, most people are just trying to get by. Nobody has time for the bullshit of burying a treasure or looking for a treasure. And even all these people that they think are worthy of the money are like, I don't want the money. Like they're they all they're all so confused. Yeah, they kind of brush it away. Like I don't want this, and then like they have to be like, no, no, take it. And they're like, fine, I guess. And then like yeah. as they drive away, they're like, that guy's not going to keep the money. I've had that experience before, like in in New York or something, when I've had like a. I've had like food and, yeah. I, and I try to give it to a, a unhoused person and they're, they're like, no, I don't want that. And I'm just like, in my head, I have like this reactionary thing where I'm just like, why? Why don't, why, why don't, like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, you need food, and mm-hmm. I'm trying to give you food. But then, like, in reality, I'm also just like, man, if I were a homeless guy, I would not want, like, who knows what's in that food right. that, they're, that, that someone's going to give to me? Who knows what conditions come with accepting that food? Who knows, like, there's pride involved. Like, people just want to be people. Yep. And, and when you add in uh, uh, charity to it, it becomes this other world. It, it, relationships become transactional and thus become correct corrupted when someone might just be trying to help you fix a tire yep. when, when you give them money for it then it becomes like you're almost taking their karma away from them right. right which is like something that this book is kind of about and so by the end as they're on the way back to the airport to fly home or to mexico for the wedding they're like running out of time and they're literally just throwing money out the window they're bowling up dollar bills and throwing out the window and i thought that was funny in a very like we failed kind of way yeah, and like, the truck behind them is trying to dodge the money because they think it's just like garbage being thrown out the window 
seemingly thousands of dollars in like multiple currencies that they just have not been able to give away because they don't they don't see that many people and like people that they like we shouldn't give that person any money. Well, the other thing that I thought was interesting in it, which which also I think it captured, was the weird uh, embarrassment of trying to give someone money. Yeah. Like if you both um, both sides are embarrassed. Yeah. 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 It's because again, it's it's once you take two people and you make a relationship transactional, you create a power dynamic. Most normal people, when confronted with a power dynamic, if they're more powerful, they feel ashamed of it because they know that that's not right. They know that they didn't do anything to earn that power dynamic. They know that they're there by total chance, right? Because of the provenance of them being born in a certain place during a certain time under these certain parents with these governmental leaders, the fact that they didn't live in an area that was being like perpetually bombed or uh, in the middle of an global economic crisis or an AIDS epidemic or, or all of these things. These are all just like complete matters of total chance that have been exacerbated by capitalism and and corruption and all of these things. So like once you establish a power dynamic and you try to give someone money or you try to give someone charity in any way, there is a part where you're saying you're admitting that you're, yeah. you're, you're admitting that you don't deserve the things that you have. And that can be embarrassing. And there is there's also the white savior thing that these are just two like kind of like all American boys. Yeah. Going around to. Not necessarily all, you know, places of of other races and ethnicities, but like they go to, they spend a lot of time in Senegal. They go to Estonia. They go to Latvia. They're in Casablanca. It's just like they're either the white saviors or the privileged saviors. Archetypally, that's not really wanted. I think in a lot of ways, and I'm going to expand on this after we explain a little more of the plot. I think this book is about whiteness. It is about being an unremarkable white dude, and what that means and the various angers and embarrassments that come with that. The plot is just loosely that they're traveling around the world, that they go from Chicago, they go from O'Hare, I think, and their first stop is to Senegal. And they spend a lot of time there. It feels like almost disproportionately they spend more time in Senegal than anywhere else. Probably. It, it, it does seem like that. Even, yeah. At least narratively, even though like in the book, it's probably like a day and a half mm-hmm. or something, but it's mm-hmm. like, they're there for a while. Like they're there. Cause they're really only in four places. And this is, I mean, not that it's a wildly long book, but of the three books that we've read so far, this is the longest book. Yeah, 400 pages. Yeah. And so that's, you know, a good chunk in Senegal and then Casablanca and then Tallinn, Estonia, outside Helsinki, and then Riga. So So why are they doing this? Why are they, what what motivated Will to, to have to do this, do you think? And this is where it gets into the weirdness of hands thing, which we'll get into, but their friend Jack died in a terrible, horrific way that he was driving slowly and a semi-truck like a tractor trailer whatever drove over the car and killed him i'm having a hard time talking about what like the the hand thing like fucked let's, up how let, I'm let, 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 let's forget about the hand thing okay. for a second so well, their, and, friend, their friend jack dies and they're they feel i think just adrift and they want to do something and while emptying jack's uh storage locker will takes a serious beating mm-hmm. from these three guys that it's possible that Hand had enraged at a local gas station earlier yep. by talking shit to them. Yep. I remember the, the guys the guys buying Red Rope Licorice and Hand is making fun of him. He's saying like, what are you the fucking mayor of Red Rope Licorice Town? You just handed out by decree. And uh, the guy's like, rightfully so, like, what the what the fuck? Why, why are you picking a fight with me over the amount of Red Rope Licorice that I'm eating? So so anyway, Will Will ends up taking a beating from those guys, and he's very upset. Because, because Hand also went with him and then just wandered away and yeah. wasn't there to either help or take the beating or whatever. Right. When Hand is sort of uh, established over the course of the novel as being sort of a 
physically imposing sort of uh, confident, physically superior guy to to Will. He's the he was at one time the second best swimmer in all of Wisconsin, for example. Yeah. And it, it's, again, the, the sort of thing where it seems like Will is envious both of Jack and of Hand in every way. And he's envy, like every time they go somewhere, Hand is like talking to women and like has no yeah. problems talking to women or dancing with women or, you know, talking to people and giving them money or like he knows French and they're all in these like French speaking countries and he's doing like all the work and Will is just there. And I don't remember which part, if it's in the, the Will part or the Hand part, it doesn't matter. They're talking about the nature of the narrative. And this, I think, was very interesting. I think it is in the Hand part. It's the week worth documenting, right? Like they're going to have an experience. And even knowing that Will can't get out of his shell, he can't get out of his own head. And like, there's so much of this book that is spent talking about like the library, the librarians inside Will's head. I I, got to, I find that section of writing to be absolutely stunning. There, there, There is a part in the beginning where Will is describing the librarians in his head. He's, he, he imagines himself sitting at a desk, looking over a field. When he's trying to recall things, he imagines librarians bringing him files, and he opens the file, and he looks at the file, and that th- that's where his memories are. Yep. But randomly, they will bring him a file that has... Jack. Jack. A photo of J- the newspaper that had Jack's car being crushed, and he is... He's like, what's this? And they're like, oh, we made copies. Like, yeah. They're trying to be helpful. It's like, no, I don't want this. Yeah, and, and, and it's like uh, this really powerful indication of how grief works right that you could be watching an episode of 60 minutes that is about how toilets work or something like that and you will be reminded for no reason there is no trigger you will just be reminded that your your friend died yep and and it's it's like the thing that panic attacks are made of right because like which he has a couple in this book yeah uh which i think are artfully and and specifically rendered in in a way that makes you really uh, uh, kind of understand the way that they they function, at least for him. And also done differently because he's the one with the narrative. And so he just kind of like the narrative just kind of stops and he just like, he's like, I'm lying on the ground now. And then like hands over me or whatever. Like it just, yeah. It's a wildly subjective book, wildly subjective interpretation of the events that he went through, which brings us to Hand. Hand also in his section meets a woman who's brother i think died or something her yeah, son he brought his, her brother or her brother drowned yeah and she's like i'm not sad yet like i know i'm going to be but like it's she's kind of like the time or the phase shifted will where it's like i know that i'm gonna get hit and i'm gonna get fucked up by this like this yeah. is going to ruin me but i'm not there yet and she's like i, I know that's weird but like that, i'm just being honest right and so will is there and it seems like to a certain extent that he's past it that he shouldn't be this messed up like, it feels and I, the timeline of it all is kind of murky or whatever but it feels like he should be okay like he's doing this thing he should be but he's, he's not he's just stuck there's the librarian stuff but there's also like ch- huge chunks of this narrative that are just him in his head having conversations with like hand but not actually having conversations or him talking to jack and jack not responding because jack's dead or like him and his mom or him and whoever i guess what he wants to say or what he yeah. feels he should say but just actually isn't yeah it's like that um that thing that happens to you when you lay in bed at night after you said something particularly mm-hmm. embarrassing where you're just or, or or you want to have a fight but don't want to have a fight in real life. And you think of all of the ways that a different conversation can go, all of the ways that you could be incredibly witty or incredibly mean or incredibly uh, profound that you couldn't in the moment because you would just never say those things or because or, or, you're not really that person. But in your, in your brain, you are that person. You're completely different. And what's 
cool about it. I don't know if cool is the right word. What's honest and refreshing about it is that he like he still like loses those arguments or whatever. Like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. He doesn't like it's not like, oh, I know exactly the right yeah. thing to say. He's like, like <laughs> even in that he can't win. Right. Very relatable. And stylistically, like that reminded me a lot of your father's Where Are They, which is I think a hundred percent dialogue driven like it's all yeah. dialogue uh that that is that is a later a later eggers novel uh your father's where are they in the prophets that live forever yes which is the one you had me read last year i guess yeah mm-hmm. but it, those like those fly by because like it just it's yeah. all like i think that's also something that structurally and literarily uh hands stuff sounds and kind of reads sort of like wills like it's not wildly different but yeah. that's not in there and so it really slows it down because there are like entire like pages and pages and pages of just the conversations like that flies by also to be fair hand section so much of it is just him going like it's raining out <laughs> I, i'm there's a thing on the beach like nothing had like yeah. hand section could be five pages yep. and it, it makes the book so much longer like it, it it draws it out to a point where it's just like dude I don't, I don't know about this. What are we doing with this section? It doesn't... Even to the point where he's like, I don't like that title. I'm calling it Sacrament. We'll get to that while later. He's just like three times. He's like, yeah. we'll talk about the Sacrament at all later. We'll talk about it later. It's like, it's like 50 pages, but there's like multiple pages, just pictures. So there's a lot of actual pictures in this book. Pictures of the Broncos, like just three, yeah, uh, yeah. four Broncos, or him screwing the light bulb, or the note that they wanted to tape with the money to the donkeys that says, here I am, Rocky, like a hurricane. Yeah. Like... These things that don't need to be in the book, but make it feel like a tr- and look like a travelogue kind of, which is cool. Yeah. It's also, I think, I think in the beginning there with when McSweeney's was just starting, they were trying to create something like uni- mixed media u- sort of. They, yeah, they were trying to create something unique design wise about their book that that sets it apart from other more traditional novels. Right. So they're going around the world, they're doing all this thing, and then we get to the hand section. Yeah. When I started reading this, like I read like one page, and all I can think is that line of my cousin Vinny where Vinny has the counter argument, like, what's your you know, counter argument? He goes, yeah, everything that guy just said is bullshit. <laughs> right, yeah. Because it's the first page, and it's just like, oh, yeah, like, that's all lies. And it's just like, well, what is it? And it's like, okay, so here's the things that, like, are different. Uh, Will was never beaten up. This is according to Hand. We don't know what's right or not, but the whole, like, one of these major impetus for him going, for them doing this trip, is, like you described, the beat up. The beating didn't happen. Yeah. There was no Jack. So the other reason that they went, <laughs> right. Will didn't have a brother. Which yeah. I think is important, but also not as important as those first two. But like his nieces, Mo and Thor, they exist, but they're babies. They're not like six or eight or whatever they're in the novel. Well, so, so what's it like? It feels like Will is trying to create a family around himself yep. that's larger than it actually is. Because later on, you find out the other big lie, which is that his mom died eight years earlier. His mom died eight years earlier. Yep. So Will is actually the real Will is actually significantly more isolated yes. than the Will of Will's narrative. Although metaphor like literally he's not isolated because he's with Han the entire time yeah. and he's got this whole family but like in his head he is the loneliest person in the world also hanging out with hand does seem alienating yep because hand is uh, a person that takes all of the breath out of the room he yep. seems to do most of the talking he uh is kind of a prick mm-hmm. all, all of these things so i don't know like having hand around is like having a it's ha- it's having a great friend but it's also having someone that you can't really turn to rely on have discussions with etc etc there's also like some weird things in the hand section he says and i thought this was kind of like a cop-out in terms of the like 
style of it all. He's like, of course, quote, of course, I'm mimicking the structural devices of the book as a whole, of the book as a whole, and I'm finding it a comfortable enough contrivance to live within. It's like, just write differently. <laughs> like he's just like, yeah, it sounds like the last guy because like this is just you know, it's just how I want to write it because like that's uh, how we'll yeah. do it. Yeah, it's possible that Eggers was still quote unquote developing his instrument at and, that point, which is what I, I'm I'm going to um, use that as a euphemism for masturbation for now. <laughs> Uh, excuse me while I develop my instrument. Love it. And then also he's just like, yeah, fiction sucks. Like people who like fiction That's are funny. dumb. Yeah. <laughs> that, no, that is funny. Especially because he says like, of course I know nothing and I'm just trying to piss you off. Like, so Han's also a troll. Yeah. But yes, the, the the big, I think one of the big takeaways is like what frames, and this isn't about the contradicting Will's thing, but I think one of the, the biggest takeaways for me in terms of like the quotes, the narrative in here is about what I was saying before. Quote, this is why we didn't sleep. We were, goddammit, trying to live a week that would be worth documenting, worth writing down minute by minute. So for him to embellish is a counter to our aims, and I think a great betrayal of what might have been a great thing. The idea we came up with well before we left was something we called performance literature. Excuse the use of that second word, because I realize it's presumptuous. Also excuse the first word in the term in general, and it goes on from there. I mean, also Hunter S. Thompson, Jack Kerouac. He's acting like that is a, a, a completely unique concept. Like, he's he's like, I don't know if this has been done before, blah, blah, blah. But, like, yes, it has. Yeah. It struck me as weird, one way or the other, that they're like, yeah, we're going to lose eight hours when we sleep. But just like, well, don't sleep eight hours then. Like, <laughs> right. Power like, nap, baby. Because he says, you know, when I get back, it's going to take me a week to get back to work or whatever. Like, I'm going to be out of sorts. Like, yeah, just like go all out for like a week and then, you know, sleep on like sleep on planes like they do. Right. Yeah. Like it does feel like they're very bad at doing this, but also well, seems it's spontaneous. This is look, this is my problem, too. I mean, one of the ways in which I related to this book was like, I am horrific at making plans and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm horrific, especially at making travel plans. I want to go to a place without any plan, experience that place by walking around. But the reality of that, as I've as has happened a couple of times on vacations with and, and have been causes of significant tensions in, in uh, a very long term relationship of mine, was that we would get to a place and be like, Oh, you planned for us to get here on Tuesday? You didn't look up to make sure that things were fucking open on Tuesday? <laughs> and then it's just like, well, we can go stand in that park over there and it's like, yeah, where are we gonna get lunch, asshole? Nothing is open right. in this place. Right. Like, that's, when I did my trip, I plan, because I'm a planner, obviously. Anybody who knows me knows that I, like, plan mm-hmm. and map out everything. But, like, there was a certain where I was just like, I don't know. Like, I'm going to be like, okay, I have a baseball ticket, or I have a ticket to this baseball game on this day in this city. So I know I need to be at the stadium by that time. Yeah. But, like, until I get there, I don't know. I'll figure it out. Like, and I have, like, a list of things that I want to do. Yeah. And it's kind of like a blend. Like, that's me, like, being free-spirited. It's like, I don't know, I could figure things out like on this route but like, i'm also spending six hours a day in the car i don't know it's 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 hard to be spontaneous i think unless you're hand in which case yeah just, right which, which i'm not i right. mean I, I i don't have that ease with people we're um, friends with a hand who's that dylan right yeah dylan is really uh very much can walk into any circumstance and become friends with just about anybody yeah. and, and like discuss pretty much any topic that you mm-hmm. put on the table which is uh both fun and frustrating yeah, which is what being <laughs> friends with a hand is like. Yeah. So Han does this whole thing, and he has this, like, kind of relationship with a married woman and, like, this tryst or whatever, and there he's afraid that there's a dead body on the beach that's, like, coming toward him, but it's just a pig. Again, important only because the final line of that uh, chapter is that the pig symbolizes nothing, yeah. right? It's important that, like, it's uh, uh, sometimes a pig ju- is just representative of a pig, right? You don't have to look for metaphor and everything. You can just find basic, simple truth yep. through performance literature. The reason why I I relate to this book 
a lot and why I think this is an important book in some ways is that I think that this book, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I think it really nails the concept of unremarkable whiteness, right? There's something about being white and middle class where achievement is expected of you mm-hmm. and rightfully so because you don't have any of the systemic yep. barriers yep. That, that, that that exist for you. So when you don't have those barriers and you still don't succeed, the only excuse that you can make is, well, I'm substandard. I'm subpar. I, I should be succeeding. I, I should have achieved. Everyone told me that I should have achieved by this point yep. everything that I wanted to achieve. And I have not achieved anything that I wanted to achieve by this point. So the only reason for that could possibly be because I'm substandard. Will has all of this anger that is corrosive and it is, he has a bad brain, right? His brain just goes all the time. It goes a million miles an hour. He has a, uh, it floats on hummingbird wings, I think he says. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because he cannot achieve any of the things that he wants to achieve that he lays out in the book. But because he cannot achieve any of the things that he wants to achieve, he lays out in the book, he has to, and this is my interpretation of it, he has to invent these tragedies to make his brain the way that it is. So you've got Jack and you've got this beating. And then all of a sudden his panic attacks and his inability to sleep and his anger, which is the anger of, uh, you know, incels and mm-hmm. and, and of uh, all, all the people in the world that think that they're not getting what they deserve. Right. I don't I don't think Will's a bad person the way that a lot of those people are bad people. But again, I think that might be partially because we're in his head. If we're because we talked about the first two books, the first two episodes of the show, the podcast, like if you're not in Vesta's head, she's a lunatic. Yeah. And if you're not in Pizza Girl's head, she's a stalker. But I think because we are so firmly entrenched in his psyche, it's like, oh, no, he's, you know, he's damaged. But, like, if you look from the outside, it might be like, oh, yeah, no, he's just as bad as all the rest of them. Yeah, maybe. I I, I mean, and, and maybe I'm making excuses for him because I am also an unremarkable white guy who has not really achieved. Hey, man, what, you got a I... Smash It podcast now. <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, I've got this uh, this Smash It podcast. I've got a, a dog that that loves me. Um, Two dogs that love you, or is one well, not love you? one of them's kind of an asshole. <laughs> But so I, I think Will has to invent these things so that when so so that it makes sense because so many of us, and by by us I mean humans, but also I think I, I mean like middle class, uh, lower middle class white guys, um, have an anger that they can't define. They they don't know where it comes from, and they and and so we have to invent these things to say like, hey, here's here's where this anger is, because we we're not uh, we we have every privilege imaginable to yeah. us uh, especially americans like straight white cisgendered um middle class um, americans like they, they, there's nothing there's no wall there right so when you have all of those things and you still feel fucking crazy it doesn't make sense to you so you have to like like will has all these things like jack and, and stuff now the the other reality that hand kind of posits behind this is that all this post-traumatic stress disorder because i think that's what the book is about kind of might just be because his mom died. Yeah. When you were saying before about how he how he has to invent these tragedies, it's like, or you could just like just accept that like losing a certain person at the wrong time in your life or any point in your life is going to fuck you up forever. Maybe it's not necessarily like an excuse to never do anything, but like it's okay to be sad if someone you really love dies, and like you don't have to invent other tragedies for people to be like, 
oh yeah, like I get what you're going through. I think, I think kind of what's going on with him is is that a mother dying when you're 27 is not remarkable. It's something like it's something that you don't feel special when that happens because it's already happened to but so if, many people. But around if she you. died when he was 19, that's more. That's worse. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, I, th- I think probably. But still, he's an around. adult. Like he's not like he lost his mother when she, he was like seven or whatever. Like yeah. he ostensibly like probably incorrect, right or wrong, whatever. They're like your job as a parent is to raise until 18. Then, you know, they're on their own, whatever. Right. So like he's past that age, like she did her part or whatever. Right. And so he was an adult. He was a grown ass man when she died either way, either at 19 or 27 or whatever. Right. But well, so this could be a good time to talk about Eggers a little bit and who he is and which I don't know anything about. So he wrote a book called Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius. That was a major uh, memoir, right? Yeah. It's a memoir. It's a major success. It is a memoir about uh, when he was, I think, 20, both of his parents died within a couple months of each other, each from from cancer. And he became the guardian of his little brother, Toph. So he was a 20-year-old with like a 7-year-old son, quote-unquote. And he raised him in, I think, San Francisco. I think the majority of Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius takes place in San Francisco. Uh, But they're from Chicago. He was a, a upper middle class. Uh, he's from Forest Hills, which is like where Ordinary People was filmed. It's where he went to high school with Vince Vaughn. And and okay, so there's, a, a, I did not look this up. I don't know the exact timeline to this, but his uh, sister Beth, um, who this book is dedicated to, mm-hmm. died by suicide. I'm not sure if she died before this book. I, I think it was after this book came out. But after, so definitely after the memoir. Definitely after the memoir, because... Uh, and she recanted on this. I think she referred to it as like a very Latoya Jackson moment. But she and her older brother kind of had a problem with the way that Eggers depicted raising his little brother in Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius because it's his narrative. So he centered himself. Sure. And the narrative makes it seem like they did not contribute. So I think in the wake of a Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, a book that brought him both fame and a fucking ton of money based on the tragic circumstances that that happened to him. In light of that afterwards, he created McSweeney's. He created a thing called 826 Valencia, which is a free tutoring center for kids. There's one in, uh, I think the first one's in San Francisco again, but there's definitely one in New York City. There's the, all over America, there are these places called 826 Valencia's. And he's got just like, uh, he's done a lot of incredible charity work. So I think like Eggers, I, I think this book, You Shall Know Velocity, captures a lot of um, I don't want to. I don't want to put it all. Obviously, it's a work of creative uh, fiction, et cetera. But I think it probably captures a lot of how he felt in the wake of heartbreaking work of Sagan Genius, which, to be sure, is something that he put a lot of work into and created. But it's also something that I can imagine making a ton of money off of the tragic circumstances that affected more than just you makes you feel an immense amount of guilt and makes you want to give that money back to the community right. and to people. Uh, in, in some way. And you could tell because you had me read a couple weeks ago, I think before I started this book, but you said to read his Just Say Yes rant. Yeah, the Just Say Yes rant. Which yeah. some snot-nosed college reporter or whatever is like, here's some questions. What's this about? And just like, the question's like, I'm just like cringing. The, 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 question, the question that he, the, the college reporter asked that sort of sent Eggers on this rant was, are you taking any steps to keep shit real? And so the, <laughs> the, the, the Just Say Yes rant is this rant that says like, don't be a critic. Yeah. Say yes to things. Yep. Go into circumstances positively and uh, don't deny yourself the opportunity to see things or do things because they might not be cool. Allow yourself uh, to explore all the possibilities that life has for you because 
to close your mind to these things will make your life smaller and and you'll be worse off for it. Because he like writes like logical, not logical as in the just say yes part is not, but like sane, you know, not like noteworthy. Like if it was just all that, it wouldn't be published everywhere. He's also asked about selling out. He's like, do you think you sold out? And he's just like, yeah, I made a lot of money, but I gave that all away. And that's like, he just like, he's very conscious. Like, yeah, I got paid a shitload of money to write this article and then I gave it all away. Like I didn't keep any of it. And I think that goes back to the guilt, right? That he's like, I am set for life already. Like we were talking before about royalties from movies and stuff like that. Like just, there are certain people that if you're in the right position at the right time or you have like the one right project or whatever, you're good. Like unless you're like, you spend it all stupidly, like you can just be fine, right? I think I think I also remember there being a thing, Eggers doing a reading somewhere and asking the audience if there are any public school teachers in the audience and, and a woman raised her hand and he signed over his check for the event and just said something along the lines of like, you'll be underpaid your entire life, so you may as well take this money. Which is interesting because I think that is- That's this book. That's this book because it is this moment of purity and goodness and that woman- God bless her for being a public school teacher. She probably needed the money because public school teachers are massively underpaid. But it's also this weirdly, it's it's a performative yep. thing that I'm sure he's 100% self-conscious that he's doing. And he did it. And we're talking about it now, probably almost 20 years after it happened, right? Because it is this, uh, there's a dialectic involved, right? Between um, the, the, the tensions that arise in transactional relationships. Yeah. To close out the narrative, we come back from hand to Will again, and suddenly everything, I'm just like, this didn't happen. <laughs> right. Yeah, it changes everything. It didn't, like, retroactively change things for me. Like, I'm sure if I read this again, I'd be like, oh, this didn't happen. But, like, the first thing that really they talk about when he comes back, hand just interjects. He's like, yeah, this this is probably the best place. He's like, I don't know where the editors are going to, I don't know where the editors are going right, to put yeah, this, yeah. but I think it should probably go here. And, like, I think it's roughly where it goes, but they just continue the journey because it's like a week-long narrative or whatever. And the first thing Will remembers is the champagne snowball, which is this middle school dance with a 17-year-old DJ that's basically like, hey, everybody, make out. And I'm like, I understand that, like, middle school dances are, like, the horniest of events because nobody knows cool. has control over their bodies. But, like, the way it's described is, like, encouraging them to be swingers. And I'm like, this didn't happen <laughs> like this. That's bullshit. And then they talk about setting a cow on fire. And it feels like either intentionally or unintentionally, and it's got to be unintentionally because the sacrament stuff came later. Yeah. And maybe it's just me, my brain being infected by hand, be like, yeah, he's lying. Everything that happens after the hand stuff is like, feels way more insane. Like they're not setting cows on fire in the first 250 pages. Well, I will say, I, I, I think that like something that is interesting in this book to me is that the narrators are bullies and they talk about being bullies right like will talks about shoving a kid and him splitting his shin open on a sprinkler and you can see all the white shit inside of inside of the leg like he refers to themselves as bullies and they are maybe the type of people that would set a cow on fire and it's the type of thing that you know they're kids they're 14 years old 13 years old when they're doing that stuff but it's it's like for a lot of people that will lose you the book if, if you're if you're reading and the narrator does something like that, for a lot of people, it's like, that's it for me. Well, it's like we talked about with Pizza Girl, yeah. right? It's just like, oh, I was on board until she drank a lot. And it's like, well, that's weird. That's a weird value judgment. It's Yeah, it's also, in, in this case, it's allowing that people have the time and space to grow up and change and become new people. Yeah. And I think when the narrative returns after these crazy things, Champagne Snowball and the Cow on Fire, 
Sure, but neither is not like insane, but they're both weird. They're both heightened, I think. It also shows just how not unhinged, but maybe unwell Will is, because he's imagining this whole, like, we're going to take my money. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cost exactly as much money. We're going to be good. And we're going to fly Jack to Mexico. That's right. Yeah. That's and there's insane. this whole, like, experimental surgery, and, like, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to work. It feels like, from what they've been told, he's dead. Like, he's basically dead on arrival. Gathering, garnering hope based on false confusion maybe or something that like oh yeah he was fine when he came in and then he lost consciousness well that's not how things happen and then he has like a very long like a pages long conversation with jack where jack doesn't respond because jack either is dead or never existed like we talked about like you talked about he's dealing with grief and loss the entire time but here at the end like it really comes off the rails i think that doesn't feel unrealistic to me no. because it feels like when you're in, like like that sort of heightened trauma, I think, does trigger a, a sort of mania. Mm-hmm. And, and within those manias, you you start to imagine things that are possible that are maybe not possible, right? Yeah. By the end, they just go their separate ways. It's the last time they ever see each other. Yep. Which is a bummer. Well, I mean, I guess Will dies either way. Yeah. Like a couple of weeks or a couple of months or whatever after the wedding in Mexico. And that's it. Yeah. We don't really know what Han does. I mean, I guess we know that Han survives because he yeah. writes this thing from... Auckland or wherever he is. So, so what are your final thoughts on the book? I really liked it. I think I think you liked it more than I did, which is fine. I, I still really liked it. I think what was very... The most interesting thing to me is the sacrament element, sacrament element of it all, which it sounds like kind of irks you in a way. Or no? I don't know. I, do you, like, Do you think you like Velocity more or with sacrament in there? No, it definitely complicates the narrative in a way that I, I it makes it interesting. So yeah, I don't, I don't mind it. I think without it, it's a very good story yeah. that, you know, had I had different life experiences or had I read it more than once or whatever, like I could maybe get more from it or whatever. I think narratively, maybe in a postmodern way, I don't know, like the 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 deconstruction of your own thing yeah. is fascinating. Yeah. It's also, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about postmodernism in the Otessa Mushfeg yep. episode, and, and it sort of is that idea of like, what's true? How do you know it's true? Is there any way to actually even know what truth is in yep. like a Cartesian way, right? In in a in a way that says like, I know what my experiences are because they exist inside my head, but I yep. can't really be sure what anyone else's experience are. Lots of artists who go back and like rework on work, right? Like, I don't want to say famously, but when Kanye put out The Life of Pablo. And famously, yeah, that's famous for sure. So he just like, he kept working on it and he yeah. kept, he like made minor changes. He like remixed songs. He like, just like, this isn't done. Like this is, this is where it is now. And like for like a couple months, he just kept changing it. I mean, how many cuts of fucking, uh, uh, apocalypse now yep. are there, right? Or yep. the Godfather now, the Snyder cut, right? Yep. It's, it's like just, we, we live in a world now, now of like endless remixes and I don't, that happens with literature in translation. Yeah. For sure. Yep. A lot of artists remix their work, but, it's rare, and I don't know if I can think of any other ones. I mean, sure, if I spend a lot of time, I might be able to come up with one where it's like, yeah, that's bullshit. You should like, you like, <laughs> it feels self destructive in a way that is constructive. Well, it's also, it reminds me a little bit of like, I think notoriously, uh, Clockwork Orange, when it was published in America, accidentally left off the last chapter. And that's what the movie is based on. And then you read the book, and there's an entire extra chapter <laughs> that changes everything entirely. And it's like, that was a fucking printing error. That that did, and so like everyone's like interpretation of that thing because it's largely based on the movie. Yeah, is is like this is a completely different story. That's wild. Yeah, 
I like that just Kubrick and books don't get along. Because like, like Stephen King's like, you got the shining wrong. That's the way it should be. Yeah. A movie is a completely different thing from yeah. a book. So you should feel free to go in and change the change the bones. Well, speaking of movies. The DNA. Wait, let, let me, my, my, my final thought on, yeah, go, on, sorry, yeah, on go this ahead. is that like, yeah, I, I, I do I do like this book a lot more than is this Is this your you favorite do. of the three so far? Yeah. Okay. I've run into um, walls over that. Uh, a lot of times when I recommend this book to people, they're just like, I didn't like it. I, I don't get it. I think that it's boring. Nothing happens. And these characters are unlikable. I feel when I when I do that, when I when, when someone says that to me, you know, in, in, in the way that you are with with literature or anything that you feel really close to when you recommend it and someone doesn't like it, you're just like, oh, shit, it feels like they don't like me. Right. Because I do relate to Will so much. And I'm not 100 percent sure why I relate to Will so much other than that I am, you know, that unremarkable white dude who's not oppressed by anything, but still feels an immense amount of anger and has a sort of uh, unquiet mind that doesn't that that moves faster than my body can i think at some times so like i feel like uh the writing in describing that stuff is really stunning because um like other like in anything that you really relate to when you read stuff like that you feel seen i think most people are largely unhappy with their life not maybe not largely unhappy but like i think a lot of people can relate to wanting to be more or do more or be better or see more or go more places or whatever yeah i think this is probably relatable to more people than you might think or i don't i I can see like if people like they they're not likable or i don't like how they behave or whatever or like the writing but i do think that there is something even if you're not a straight white dude i think there is something here honest like you i guess you were saying like honest or just normal like it feels like well trauma is relatable yeah i think i i mean most people have suffered some sort of trauma in in their lives but i think what makes it particularly like what makes it interesting to me is that the trauma in this that is perceived is mostly eventually removed from it we we he doesn't have the post-traumatic stress of getting his the shit kicked out of him in the in the storage locker he doesn't have the post-traumatic stress of his friend being run over by a truck right right so so like that unquiet mind is reasonless um and that's sort of that's what's interesting to me so the sacrament portion of it in having this discussion now i think is a necessary element for me to understand why i like the book so much which i wouldn't have said a month ago um i I wouldn't have given that reasoning but like really thinking it through has brought me to that to that uh perception well because i think reading just velocity you're like oh this guy is in a bad place yeah and then reading sacrament it's like oh he's way worse than we thought which is interesting because he's way worse with way less bad shit happening to him yeah which somehow does which is why because Yeah. yeah because it's reasonless yeah yeah where he has even fewer reasons to, like, be so hopeless or whatever. Mm-hmm. That he's still ostensibly a wealthy... He's not like he got... He he lied about the money. Like, he has the money. Yeah. Right? Because so much of the narrative is that people look at him like, oh my god, look at the guy with the beat up face. And like, no, it's just a face. Like, it's just a normal face. Yeah. Thinking about how you would depict that. And I think it's so... Like, you just have the first, like... I don't know how you adapt this if you adapt it with the sacrament. Like maybe you need like a Tyler Durden esque like like just like an inner cut. I, you know what I mean? Like I don't yeah. know. And then all of a sudden, instead of just having your actor maimed, just the dude is like, wait, what? And then you, you like flash back and like it's just slightly altered versions of whatever. It feels like to a certain extent he's taking this trip to say that he took this trip. 
that mm-hmm. he can then coast for years. Like I went around the world for a week and gave away thirty two thousand dollars. Which is like every single person who ever went to Mexico for the weekend and came back and like won't shut the fuck up about how they went to Mexico for the next six years. Oh, yeah. Or like how many people on dating apps have a picture of them with like a refugee like, look, at I was a good person for a week. It's like, oh, boy, you're using them as a prop. Yeah, that's not good. Even though the reality of his situation is unremarkable, like he is in these countries, but he's not doing anything. He's watching hand live, essentially. Mm -hmm. Right. In his mind, in his narrative. The reason he's not doing more or living life to the fullest or whatever is because his face is maimed and people think he's weird and an outcast. Yeah. But the reality is he's just like a wallflower. Yeah. The bruised face is is a metaphor for the life that he's living because people aren't looking at him because he's unremarkable. His inside face is bruised. Yeah. Who'd you cast? Who'd you think? Because it's just the two of them. Like that's the two... Okay, so in the Gus Van Sant version of this movie, um, um, again, we're this is a problem that we are going to continually run into. The people that I've cast in this movie are older than the 27 that the book asks for. I wonder how old my guys are. Um, and my, my answer is uh, Jake Johnson as Will and uh, Adam Driver as Hand. I had Adam Driver as Will, but I think he would maybe be a better Hand. He's too I... intimidating of a physical praise. He's really fucking tall and in good shape. And How old is he, though? He's, uh, he's like 35, something like 37. that. 37. 37. Wow. Same age as, as me. I had him and Robert Pattinson. Uh, Robert Pattinson as as uh, Well, as I was... Hand. He's 35. I had I was picturing Adam Driver, because like, this is the other thing. Very minimally, in Will's narrative, he doesn't talk about what he looks like. So so much so to the point where Hand is like, well, I guess like, Will never describe what he looks like. and like, he, he, he does a little bit. He's, he's dark skin and he has the eyelashes, eyelashes. That, that look like he's wearing mascara, right? Yes. But there is... A quote in Hans' section. He didn't describe his looks, but they're easy. He resembled very closely a young Martin Landau, though I'm not sure how helpful that is. Well, yeah. as a handsome enough guy with a large mouth area, but maybe too long in the head, he always looked more adult than the rest of us. So he could be older, right? There's those in high school who called him Munster because of a distant resemblance to Herman, but the nickname was too cruel. It made it clear it pained him to hear it. So, like, I, I think Adam Driver could work yeah. for that too. Yeah. Also, like, if you just, like, have, like, Robert Pattinson, like, beef up, like, bulk up, like, he can be intimidating. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because we've talked about them a lot because we like both their, both them as actors. And they've both been in a lot of cool stuff. And we call them the Twilight Boy and the Girls Man. <laughs> and so... Well, also, Adam Driver, I think, plays a role sort of very similar to Hand in uh, Francis Ha. And, yeah. like, this sort of person who can walk into circumstances and be very easy. And Hey, you want to see my bedroom? Knows all the... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, don't mind me. I'm just flirting with you. Yep. Those sorts of things. Um, so I think, he fi- I think he fits into that role. Also, he kind of has a swimmer's body. He's got that, like, long, thin frame yep. that, that fits. But I would just like to see the two of them together. And I think... I still have Adam Driver in the Will role, but I think he could do, like, the actual heft of it. Like, he could do, right? You got anyone for Jack? Well, Jack's not real, but yeah. I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I don't know what this guy's from. I picture like a mousy little dude. Michael Sarah. <laughs> I have a guy in my head and I don't know. I think he's an actor. He might not be an actor. I'm picturing a guy whose name I don't know. Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. Fanny Flagg. Who's that? She wrote the novel Fried Green Tomatoes. Who do you have as Jack? I didn't I didn't I didn't have anybody as Jack. Uh but I think you it's someone that's not I don't think he has very many lines or anything like that. It's just someone that you flash to occasionally. So I don't think it necessarily has to be anybody of yeah. consequence. And I couldn't think of a director. I think there's a lot of people who probably could do this. I think for for the the uh, Jake Johnson, Adam Driver one. So I Gus, think Van, Gus Van, Van, Zandt. Van Zandt. But I also think there's another version of this movie with Wes Anderson that is like Jason Schwartzman and Owen Wilson or something like that. Because of course it is. Jason Schwartzman as, as uh, Will. 
I would not watch that movie. I mean, I would. You would. It I would know. be good too. It'd be good. But yeah. it's also it also skews a little too close to Darjeeling Limited, which also deals with uh, two, three people who are close going to India to deal with a tragedy. Dead mom, right? I think it's a dead dad. Everything, oh. everything. In oh, the mom's in. on the train or something, right? Every, mom's it, in the movie. It's Angelica Houston. She yeah. shows up at the very end. Everything with Wes Anderson is about dads. I think it's more about the acting. Like, I think if you, you need like a, a director who's good with actors and just let them do their thing. 20 years ago, Wim Wenders would have been fucking great at it. Sure. Because the other thing I don't think we talked about in the episode is they describe all these places in such vivid colors. Like, I thought this was going to be green and it's brown, or I thought this was going to be brown and it's green or whatever. And like the color of it all, which is why I was saying to you before when we were getting dinner, that I think Tarsum Singh, who did The Fall, because that's so vivid, and you're like, yeah. that it's more about the costumes than that this isn't. But like, like Paris, Texas is like so, pat, like the palette is so green and so red and so like blue, right? And like it just, yeah. it's such stark imagery. It's more about having a cinematographer than anything else. You know who could do it? Luca Guadagno. I've only seen the uh, Suspiria, which I really liked, so. He did that. I mean. Yeah, he did Call Me By Your Name. Call Me By Your Name. And A Bigger Splash is also really good. And their bigger splash, I think, takes place like in Italy, maybe. Yeah. And call me by your name is somewhere, maybe in Europe. I'll check him out. He's got the global thing and kind of got the like, you know. I forget who was the cinematographer, but there's a movie from the '70s called Scarecrow, starring Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman. Something that's remarkable about that movie is it makes the American landscape look in a way that you have never. It's beautiful in a way that if you're American, you don't look at America that way, and it's because, at least in my opinion. Uh, it's because the cinematographer is Vilmos Zygmunt. Vilmos Zygmunt, yeah. So who did Close Encounters with yeah, the Deer Hunter? Very, very famous. Um, oh, also Long Goodbye, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. But I think yeah. I think Scarecrow was maybe his first American movie. Okay. And so, like, you're looking at this American landscape through the eyes of someone who's not an American, and it it becomes this different thing because yeah. it's, it's it's not just Pat to him. It's it's not a complete like retread of things that he's seen a million times. Well, I mean, I think you see that a lot. Like when Steve McQueen made 12 Years a Slave, it's like, oh, you need someone who's not in America, who didn't grow up with like American slavery to kind of make like the best, and best is maybe the wrong word, but like make an honest, like sort of a, the best movie version. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it just, it's a different thing. Like it's an outsider's perspective. Mm-hmm. Bill Moss also shot the Ben Affleck vehicle Jersey Girl, so... Yeah, he's great. He's a great. He's a great cinematographer. I thought of another person who could do this. Probably director Linklater could probably do it. Yeah, maybe. I think visually he's kind of a boring director. So much of this, they're just like it's just brown. It's just they go over. It's just like or yeah. whatever. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So about that mailbag. You know, we got an email from your friend Meg. So today, as we record this, our first episode came out. So still, people really don't know that this show exists. So uh, I got a text message from Meg earlier that was insulting. Did she listen to the episode? No, but she she sent me a song, and the song is uh, either the band is Strawberries and Cream or the band is Ninja Sex Party, and the name of the song is FYI I want to f your a. <laughs> and her text message that follows this is Bobby. Didn't your dad say something like that? To which I, I think she meant, didn't your dad say that he wanted to fuck your ass? Which is fascinating. I'm not really sure what she's referring to, so I'll text message her back later about it. The band is Ninja Sex Party. The band is Ninja Sex Party. FYI, I want to F your A. She was asking me if my if my uh, dead father at some point wanted, asked if he could fuck my ass. There's our, our, girl, our girl Egg coming through with the content. Do you know if Egg read Velocity or Sacrament? She read the whole thing. I actually, um, I told, I... I told her to read Sacrament at the end. Read Sacrament after she read through. Which the is what you told me, and I'm like, nah. Yeah. I kind of like that I did my way, but I don't think there's a wrong way to do it. I think they're both interesting. So here we go. Meg's reaction to You Shall Know Our Velocity. 
Finished reading the book a couple days ago. At first, I was disappointed with the way things ended up, but that's mainly because of the hand insert. There we go. Answer my question. Bobby had me read that last, which I greatly appreciate. Booyah. I've decided that I'm interpreting hand as being the unreliable narrator and the one who is telling falsehoods rather than will. My main reason for doing that is I feel it would stand a reason that hand wouldn't want to be the last one of the trio left and the one who looks the worst. The man who wrote the insert definitely is the same kind of person who would run his mouth and let his friend take a beating for him. <laughs> and even if there's some third truth that's neither Will's nor Hand's, there's some reason that Will mentioned the beating in great detail throughout the novel, and yet Hand denies it happening at all. Now that I think about it, the book could just be about the ending of a childhood friendship. Maybe there was no Jack. Maybe Jack represented all of Hand's good qualities, and something happened, something akin to letting Will get beat up by a bunch of guys. That was the ending for Will, and he took Hand on the trip to try and salvage the friendship then realize that a hand was actually just that person, the person who let him, Will, take a beating for him, hand. In conclusion, hand is the worst. I, there's actually, like, that. there's something really fascinating about the idea of someone after their friend, like, their friend dies and they write this book. And within that book, there's this narrative of them taking a beating and where they blame the, the second friend. But, like, also throughout that book, there's, like, a lot of evidence of, like, or there's a lack of evidence to that existing, like, right, right, because they never went to the cops, they never went to a hospital, because they didn't want a paper trail in case they were going to find those guys and kill them. So it's interesting that, like, someone like Hand, after the fact, knowing that there was no real evidence for this beating, was just like, that didn't happen, <laughs> even if it did, um, to, like, sort of make us think of him as less of a shitty friend. That's not that's not my interpretation, but I think that's a, that's a funny interpretation. Well, because it does feel like he just, you said before in describing his section that he just, like, it's so rainy. Like, it just feels like he just ran away. He's just like, he's living in a, in New Zealand or whatever. Like, he's, af- he's afraid. He's afraid. Like, I think his section also shows that he's afraid because he, he won't look at the body. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, which is a pig. It is funny. Not funny. It's interesting that both of these sections make the narrator seem unlikable. But I don't, I don't think that Will's unlikable. I think, I, well, he's relatable. He's not cool. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. If you want to email in lottery at cageclub.me, send in a note. If you want to get episodes early, patreon.com slash lottery pod. By the time this comes out, there will probably be another two or so episodes to hear on the Patreon because we have a thousand page book coming up later this season and we're doing episodes in advance because we got a safe time to read Duck's Newberry Report. But next week got Memories of My Father Watching TV by Curtis White, which is probably, honestly, the hardest book in the here to find. I don't think it exists digitally. You were saying that Egg was having a hard time finding it in the library. She got a copy of it. Oh, good. It's short. It's the shortest book in the series by Curtis White. We also have an Audible. I don't think it's an Audible. I don't think it's an audiobook of this. But if you want to have Audible of Duck's Newberry Report, we are inching closer to this thousand-pager. Like, every episode that we tease it, you have two fewer weeks to listen to it. So get it now. Cageclub.me slash lottery. Click on the little banner. Get a free audiobook. Cancel it. Um, anything else you want to say? Uh, was there anything for the Patreon that I was willing to do? If you, oh, this is legitimate. Go ahead and do this. Um, if you send me a, uh, a receipt saying that you donated 20 bucks, 25 bucks to, uh, either Planned Parenthood or, uh, the ACLU and you send us, uh, your address, I will mail you a book from my personal library. Ooh. How about that? I give $10 to each of those every month. Nice. I'm not going to give you a book. 
Well, you've given me the gift of reading. And with that, I will say, keep reading. Uh, no, we're not going to end the show with that because there's still crime to discuss. Um, and today's crime is uh, what the British call touching the dog's ass. <laughs>